0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Wilson Sonsini Goodrich and Rosati, the premier legal services provider to technology, life sciences and clean energy enterprises. Wilson Sonsini has built a leading energy and climate solutions practice and its team is dedicated to a single goal, advancing what's next in the energy industry. Wilson Sonsini is the firm of choice for companies, investors and lenders worldwide. They work with innovative early stage companies on transactions and agreements and represent clients in large scale energy project financings and market-opening regulations. For more information about Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team, visit wsgr.com. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Energy Gang, taping from New York University in downtown New York City. We have something a bit different for you today. We're going to be joining NYU's Scenarios event, which is an event where professors and students and outside experts get together to think about what our climate and energy future might look like. The idea is to think about what we expect to happen over the next two decades or so, and in particular, to think about how we might be wrong in those expectations. By getting together about 50 people with a wide range of different perspectives on energy and climate, we aim to put our ideas and expectations to the test. What forecasts can we be confident about and when are we really just guessing? What aspects of the climate, policy, technology, and finance might surprise us over the years and decades to come? What might turn out better than we expected, and what could be worse? And what blind spots and biases are going to lead us astray when we try to predict the future? These are the kinds of issues we're going to try to address at this event and on this podcast. To start us off, I'm going to hand over to Energy Gang regular Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab at NYU, and she's our host here today. Amy... Thanks very much for inviting us to take part in your event. I'm looking forward to a fascinating afternoon.
1: So, a little bit of an explanation. We're here in the Kimmel Center for University Life at New York University, and we're about to participate in the Energy, Climate, Justice and Sustainability Labs Scenarios event, which we've entitled Imagining 2040, Climate Storytelling Through Scenarios. And why am I re-describing that for the people here in the room? That is because we're taping today's event to be part of one of the world's most popular uh, energy podcasts, The Energy Gang, uh, where I am a regular contributor on the show, together often with Robbie Orvis, who is also here with us today, and host uh, Ed Crooks, and as a special guest, my colleague from Tufts University, Aaron Coughlin de Perez. So the ECJS lab here at NYU has organized a day to follow the same scenarios creation format recommended by the task force on climate-related financial disclosure, which is often referred to as the TCFD. In 2017, TCFD, cheered by Michael Bloomberg, designed governance strategies to help corporations understand and decipher climate-related physical risks and the potential implications of the world transitioning to a low-carbon economy. Uh, This format's been used by many important firms to initiate net-zero strategies, including Ford Motor Company, uh, British Petroleum, and General Electric. So today, together, we're going to build energy and climate resilience scenarios. And, you know, why scenarios? You might be asking yourself. Well, they're particularly useful for analyzing energy transition. And that's because ultimately the trajectory for how we're going to move forward in the energy transition remains uncertain. And there's a wide number of variables that can affect the outcome. So we know from experience that some of the most important things that have been influencing the energy transition are qualitative. By that I mean, they're hard to measure and model in a quantitative way. So, this way, by using scenarios, it allows us to explore and plan for more than one eventuality. And if we're able to do that, that means that the strategies we'll develop are going to be more apt to bring us a resilient and positive future. So, when we use scenarios, it allows us to consider more than one future at a time. And that helps us think through all the different futures that might be possible. And that way, we can think about what strategies do we need that could really be successful across multiple different events. Today, everyone in this room, you should consider yourself a futurist. We're all futurists today. We're not students and experts and Uh, members of important organizations or NYU professors. We're just all equal futurists. And our mission is to create narratives about our climate future that might differ from those we're currently presented with by experts and government. And our hope is by engaging in this kind of exercise, we'll promote participating in the creation of this better future we need to be part of. So, first of all, a few parameters. Our time scale is as follows. We're going to talk about in our narratives what happens between now and 2030, and then again what will happen between 2030 and 2040. So that's our time scale. I'm going to give you solid seven building block topics. Those are technology, social and cultural change, Behavioral change, so that's, you know, am I changing my diet? Am I changing my clothes? Am I changing how I get around and my mobility choices? Policy and regulation, geopolitics, since we all know how much uh, the war in Europe has changed the energy picture, environmental factors and economic factors. So first step, we begin with our panel, which will lay out net zero trends that energy experts are expecting and also some climate uh, scenarios. I'm gonna put our spec in the good hands of Energy Gang host, Ed Crooks. Over to you, Ed.
0: Well, thanks very much indeed, Emmy, uh, for that excellent introduction. So to set the scene for our discussions uh, for the rest of the afternoon, uh, we are joined again by another Energy Gang regular, Robbie Orvis, who's the senior director for modeling and analysis at the think tank Energy Innovation. Thanks very much for joining us, Robbie. And it's also great to welcome a new face and and voice to the podcast, Erin de perez who's a climate scientist based at Tufts University at the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy. Thank you very much, Erin, for coming today. So we're thinking here about the outlook to 2040 is the focus for the discussion. That seems very near, only 17 years away now. When you think about climate science... Erin, and when you think about what climate science is telling us about what the future holds, what changes would you expect to see by 2040?
2: Well, I think what's sometimes difficult about climate change is that we're rolling a die, right? Every day you're rolling a new die to see what weather you're going to get that day. Climate change is changing what's on our die. So you might think, oh, in the past, I've rolled numbers between one and six. Six is the highest number I can roll. You're rolling it every day and you're getting some twos and threes. And you don't realize that there's actually a seven and an eight on your die. So you could roll that now or you could roll that in a few years. And it's hard because rolling that eight drastically changes how people think about climate change in society, right? So New York City gets hit by Hurricane Sandy and all of a sudden... There's a lot of willpower and interest in building resilience to climate change in New York City. Even though actually a lot of plans have been detailed pre-Sandy, it was the actual event that, that pushed people to, to invest actually a lot more in this city. So exactly what our next few years are going to look like is sometimes the die roll. Who's going to get hit by the hurricanes that are getting stronger? Who's going to get hit by the massive heat waves that are going to kill lots of people? What I can say is that by 2040, we're going to be seeing more and more of these things in more and more places, more simultaneous extremes, for example, so concurrent failures in different breadbaskets, for example, Um, you know, storms followed by floods, followed by, you know, fires, et cetera. So what exactly our next two years looks like can only be described by better understanding what die we're rolling. And that die is changing over the next few years.
0: And what about the outlook then beyond 2040, depending on the trajectory for emissions? Presumably then it also kind of becomes clearer from the perspective of 2040, when we know what's happened to emissions, we know what we're going to be expecting for the decades to come out to the end of the century and possibly beyond, right? Right
2: right so it becomes much more obvious um that we're going to be rolling high numbers if we emit a lot right now i mean so right now if you imagine you have a die in the next few years that might have a seven might have an eight but you know in in 40 years we're rolling dice that have you know dice that have 15s and 20s on them i mean we are we're, we're looking at completely unprecedented events that have never happened before um that that will be really a different world
0: And so when you think about the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, for instance, and when you think about the trajectories that we need to get to to get to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, which I guess is sort of net zero greenhouse gas emissions around 2050, right? And if you think about limiting global warming to 2 degrees centigrade, which means getting to net zero greenhouse gas emissions around 2070, presumably by 2040, it'll be reasonably clear whether we're actually on either of those trajectories or not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, we've already been seeing that we're, you know, if you look at reports, like climate science reports from 20 or 30 years ago, there were trajectories outlined in those reports that were never followed, right? We've cut out futures that people were imagining 30 years ago. And they said, really, oh, man, I hope that we go down this pathway with this really gentle future. Um, And we've chosen not to do that. And so that's, I think, going to be us in a few years saying, what pathway did we choose? Did we choose the pathway with a gentle future and a prosperous future, or did we choose the pathway where these extremes are very evident?
0: Although, to be clear about it, we've also chosen to avoid some of the worst possible pathways. I mean, the the pathway that leads to perhaps six degrees centigrade of warming by the end of the century now looks very unlikely because of the action we've taken. And sometimes I think there's you know, a certain amount of fatalism creeps into climate policy and people think, oh, we haven't really achieved anything. And, you know, the fossil fuel share of total global energy supply is as high as it was 20 years ago. And people kind of infer from that, that climate policy is a complete waste of time. That's not really right. And in particular, I think we've we've ruled out a kind of a very, very coal intensive future, which was the trajectory that really would have led to absolutely disastrous outcomes for the climate, even if, as you say, we haven't managed to yet get onto a pathway that would lead to the mildest and and most benign possible outcomes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, years ago, I remember in um, the humanitarian sector, we were reading reports about a four degree warmer world, and we were terrified. And most of what was articulated in those possibilities is no longer considered likely. I mean, we've really avoided a lot of catastrophic possibilities, which is amazing. I completely agree. And I think actually that climate doomerism is the most dangerous thing that could happen uh, to our world. And and um, in my courses that I teach at Tufts University, we talk about this and talk about climate doom and how being paralyzed by a sense of fatalism is the worst possible thing that we could do right now. And we're actually making a choice to follow a pathway that is gentle and prosperous, right?
0: So, Robby, what's your view on this? When you think about, uh, as Aaron's saying, getting onto that more benign pathway than the one we're currently on, what are the chances of us being able to do that?
3: Well, I I think, to your point, Aaron, it's remarkable how much progress we've made in the last decade. I mean, we have solar panels that have dropped over 90% in price, and same for wind, uh, batteries, LEDs. And so we've unlocked this future now where we have a lot of the technology and we're trying to project where it's gonna go. Um, We have a lot of the technology to get on these pathways. I think where we are now is what will it take to deploy it? Both in terms of policy, we know we're gonna need policy. What types of policy do we need to deploy clean tech? How fast can we do it and how fast do we wanna do it? And are there trade-offs? And then what are the supply chain constraints, right? There's a lot of talk about EVs, electric vehicles today and batteries but all of the minerals, at least in today's technologies, that are required and what that means for scaling up those technologies. So it's, we're in a fundamentally different place than a decade ago because we have a lot, I would, I would argue most, of the technologies we need to get onto a net zero pathway. And now what we're staring down is, okay, how do we do it? What policies do we need? And how quickly can we do it relative to what the trade-offs are?
0: And in terms of energy policy then, what should be the priorities for policymakers trying to get us towards that net zero scenario?
3: Well, I, I think that successful climate and energy policy really needs three factors. It needs incentives to help uh, bring new technologies into the marketplace and drive down their costs, coupled with standards that help them to deploy that technology into the economy and into the marketplace once it comes down. And then you need research and development. And so if you look at the success we've had with different technologies to date. We can look at solar PV, where incentives in Germany helped drive down the cost, and then standards uh, in Europe and in China and in the U.S. helped deploy that into the economy. It's a similar story for other technologies. So, you know, coming back to where we are now in the U.S., we have kind of one leg of that now from the Inflation Reduction Act, at least for the next decade or so. I think we're starting to see the other pieces of that. So, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency just released proposed rules last week that's kind of focused on driving, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, electric vehicles into the economy now that we have the incentives to build on. So those are, uh, at least from where I sit, the kind of three key pillars to getting that technology to market and then driving it into the economy. And we really need all three to be successful in decarbonizing the energy system.
0: And when you look ahead to 2040, how optimistic or pessimistic do you think that by 2040, we'll be saying, yeah, we are now on this pathway we are where we need to be in order to get the world towards net zero sometime around the middle of the century, or not?
3: Well, I'm, I guess, a techno-optimist in that I, I think we have a lot of the technologies we need. I think the policy you know, environment can change a lot. Uh, two years ago, I would have been much more pessimistic now that we have the Inflation Reduction Act. And we seemingly have this now race to the top across a lot of countries to incentivize domestic clean energy manufacturing and deployment. So, um, and, you know, one of the things that you're going to lead us through today, Amy, is looking at how rapidly different change, whether it's policy or technology, uh, can change the outcome. So, um, and, and I think one other thing is that the, our targets keep changing a little bit, right? Like the latest IPCC report uh, pushes for an even more ambitious target than we've been than we've been working towards. So it's definitely a trade-off. Um, I think that it's going to be hard to argue with the technology trends. Um, and just as an example, if you look at all the auto manufacturers and their plans to produce EVs, it's, it, at some point it goes beyond the policy realm, right? It gets integrated into the private sector and their plans. And I think we're starting to see that, whether it's EVs, or utilities building renewables or batteries and mineral supply chains. So um, I am cautiously optimistic. It uh, It is a very challenging task we have ahead of us, but given the pace of development of technologies and that we're starting to get some policy success, I think it's doable, but it will take a lot of effort.
1: I think fundamentally, I think if the equipment's available, people will buy. You know, that's actually, believe it or not, that should be like a simple idea, but I think that's actually a controversial idea. People believe that no one will buy an electric car, but I own one, so I know the benefit, right, of not having to go to a gasoline station. So I think, honestly, the most interesting recent data point we have is the ability of both governments and citizens to completely change course. And the big example we have is the European 2022 energy market, which was by force because of the war. But uh, we now know the outcome of the winter of 22-23, and it's pretty positive. Europe added 50 gigawatts of renewable energy that eliminated 11 billion cubic meters of natural gas. And for your listeners that don't know how many gigawatts that is, an average solar farm is only 200 megawatts, and a nuclear plant would maybe be a gigawatt or so. So we're talking about a pretty big expansion given the fact that they didn't add any nuclear, right? So, but on top of that, let me give you another number. Germany installed 220,000 residential battery systems to go along with probably their rooftop solar in just one year, right? So that's a lot. And the solar panel imports in Germany from China, which of course you know, some people say you know too much of this equipment is coming from one country, seventy percent up. So I, I do believe this people will buy it thing. But then we have to think about you know what could go right and what could go wrong, and that's sort of the purpose of our exercise today. So you know, if you think about the Trump-inspired U.S.-China trade war, that's a scenario of something that could go wrong uh, because we can't just assume that the batteries and solar panels will be there because the trade war really curtailed trade in solar panels. And then we can think about how the COVID disruption uh, made the temporary shortage in semiconductor chips and how that affected your ability to buy a car. Uh, and then I like to tell my personal story, which is that I had to literally turn off and get a totally new refrigerator because PG&E The transformer near my home in in California uh, didn't have it in proper repair. It blew up. That caused a surge in my house, which then burned up the circuit board on my refrigerator. But why am I telling you this story? Because the circuit board for my refrigerator brand was made in Fukushima, Japan. And of course, all of the manufacturing in that location was disrupted by the tsunami. So we need a lot of things to go right. And... That, I think, is really the challenge. So our next step is all going to uh, uh, engage in an activity. I'm going to give you some instructions. So you've been assigned a quadrant, and that, each of those quadrants have a, a, a set of tables. So I'm going to ask you to move to those tables. And when you get to your table assignment, um, you're going to see these post-its, which are color-coded for specific thing, and I want each of you to come up with your own intervention, kind of like the ones we've been making here, on these post-its. So one technology breakthrough you think might happen or or impact you think could happen, or regulatory and so forth, and write them on the post-its, and then go put your post-its underneath. You'll see here on this side of the room, you'll see the different color codings for the post-its and your interventions. So just post, stick your post-it on the wall, underneath the correct category. And then what we're gonna do is I'm gonna come around and I'm gonna pick a couple of those post-its and I'm gonna build a scenario right in front of you using the post-its. And then after we do that, then we will go into our breakout groups uh, and do our story creation. So uh, take a few minutes to go to the tables and uh, write your interventions on the post-its. Okay, let's get to it.
0: The participants here have been writing down potential risk factors and uncertainties about the outlook. Uh, They've been putting them on post-it notes which are coloured differently according to the theme that they're addressing. So one colour for geopolitical influences, another for environmental factors, another for technological breakthroughs and so on. And the kinds of things that people are talking about are, for instance, a big shift away from long-distance travel as a... Social and cultural preference that people decide only to travel locally. Technological breakthroughs, things like um, the emergence of direct air capture at uh, very low cost, making it possible to capture carbon dioxide at only uh, $20 a ton, or the emergence of nuclear fusion as a viable energy source. And uh, policy and regulatory trends, things like a ban on suvs or regulations restricting air travel very markedly and then some of the other changes geopolitical shifts things like um, outbreak of war potentially in the middle east or even between the us and russia some great power conflict environmental factors including things like perhaps there'll be the first ever category six hurricane perhaps an increase in droughts an increase In flooding and other weather-related disasters and economic factors, including things like a big rise in inflation or the emergence of a global carbon market. And all these kind of things are meant to be capturing some of the key uncertainties. And what people are saying is these are the risks, these are the things that we don't know for sure, but that could happen, which are going to make a very big difference to the outlook for energy and climate over the decades to come. So, Erin, you've been involved in some of the discussions with participants this afternoon on crucial uncertainties of the outlook for energy and climate over the coming decades. What are some of the most interesting things you've been hearing?
2: I've been impressed that people seem to really have a good handle on the kinds of extreme events that we're expecting. I mean, the whole group is spitting out heat waves and droughts and floods and sea level rise. So it seems to me like people have a good picture of what kinds of things could come our way. Some of the creative implications of this are novel to me. I mean, so the group was saying, okay, well, let's imagine you have a world where, um, you know, fruits and vegetables are harder to obtain. They're more expensive because of production and also because of shipping them. Um, And so, you know, really nutrition is a big problem. Um, And so you end up, you know, we're telling a story of this little boy named Howard in Florida, and he ends up eating a lot of prepackaged food, and he ends up being in his air-conditioned house a lot because of the heat waves. And, um, you know, it's really unpleasant outside with the flooding. And thinking about a world where children are kind of trapped in their homes eating prepackaged food is somewhere I had not really gone with that, uh, which was fascinating.
0: That is really interesting, yeah. And I suppose also some of the implications in terms of sort of negative feedbacks where um, climate change creates conditions that accelerate emissions of greenhouse gases and therefore lead to more climate change as you say if you need to use more air conditioning because there's more heat waves increases energy use quite possibly increases greenhouse gas emissions as a result if you need more food packaging you need more plastics production and so on if you need to transport your food further then again can lead to increased emissions and so on so yeah no it's very interesting that people are thinking about those
2: yeah well, and our group was creative in thinking about what are the pathways forward so that these choices that are protective of this individual person um, don't cause massive amounts of new emissions. And so thoughts about, you know, um, biodegradable packaging, which is in the works in, in different places, including at Tufts University. Um, thoughts about, you know, changes to the grid and where we get our energy and how it how it is supplied to people and what kind of demand management we need to have. So there were a lot of creative solutions Um But the world with a lot of disasters just still wasn't a great world, is what I was taking home.
0: And when you personally then think about risks and uncertainties to the energy and climate outlook, what do you think about? What are the things that you think really could make a very, very significant difference to the energy system, to the climate, to the way we live our lives? Over the decades to come.
2: In reaction to the recent IPCC synthesis report that just came out, the UN Secretary General called it everything everywhere all at once. I actually haven't seen the movie, but I thought the phrase was pretty apt. Uh, And I'm not sure I could pick one thing that's going to be I'm most excited about. I mean, I really do think we need everything everywhere all at once, Um, including adaptation and mitigation at the same time, right? So if we're changing the grid, we need a grid that's also resilient to the disasters that come... In the future. Um, and Hurricane Ida, I think, is a great example because it hit New Orleans. It looked a lot like Katrina when it was bearing down in New Orleans. Everyone was quite terrified. And Katrina, you know, did better than it did during, or sorry, New Orleans did better than it did during Katrina, of course. But Ida, the storm, caused fewer deaths than the heat wave that followed the storm because Ida had taken out the power. And so people were baking in their apartments. They, you know, they weren't able to get out. They were, you know, the city had just had a hurricane. Um, And because there was no air conditioning and no electricity, a lot of people died.
0: And so the lesson from that is what, as you say, to be thinking about climate adaptation, system resilience preparing ourselves for those extreme events that are going to become more common as the decades pass.
2: Exactly. So if we are going to be electrifying our world, our electrification needs to be resilient to the changing world that we live in and the changing extremes.
0: So, Robbie, you've been taking part in the discussions that participants have been having here about the outlook for energy and climate and the risks around that outlook. When you think about the crucial uncertainties and the things that might be kind of disruptive factors in terms of the way the energy system evolves over the coming decades. What do you think about?
3: Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about conflict, about international conflict, um, building on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then the decoupling of U.S. and China and kind of looking forward and the different outcomes that means. And obviously we've seen some of that in policy world already with all of the, you know, there's not really another way to call it than other than anti-China legislation in the U.S. And so I think that, you know, there's a big uncertainty there on cost and on resource availability, whether it's the clean technology resources or the minerals that go into them or the processing. The supply is out there, but who's uh, extracting it and processing it, and what the laws and restrictions are on importing that uh, is a big question mark in terms of how quickly we can scale. And I think that's that's something I've heard throughout, although in various different ways, you know, generally about conflict and what it means, and then the the knock on effects, whether it's inflation and high interest rates or, you know, willingness to for companies to invest in research and development.
0: And Robbie, when you think about crucial uncertainties in the outlook and some of the most important risk factors in terms of the way the energy system is going to evolve over the next few decades. What do you think about?
3: I think about cooperation and partnership across countries. Um, Again, building off of the kind of current state of geopolitics and what it means for uh, cooperation going forward. The availability of minerals uh, and other resources, I mean, a lot of folks are focused on that right now, but that's that's a big one. And the speed with which we can deploy things, I mean, um, we have, you know, a lot of the incentives and economic tailwinds uh, in place now, but one of the largest challenges is being able to scale deployment. And if we're talking about being on a 2050 or today, a 2040 net zero timeline, that is a major challenge to deploying enough clean energy. I mean, I think that was the report a couple weeks ago from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that said there's 2,000 gigawatts of clean energy in the internet interconnection queues, like roughly double the, the size of the grid today. And, um, you know, there's progress on on working on uh, freeing up those bottlenecks, but that takes a long time too. And the energy system can take a long time to turn over. So on the 20 50, let alone 2040 timescale, being able to resolve those bottlenecks very soon is going to be key if we're able to deploy enough clean stuff to really decarbonize the energy system.
0: Wilson Sonsini is the premier provider of legal services to technology-driven enterprises and innovators. The firm represents growing and established companies and advises management teams and boards of directors. The firm is nationally recognised for its work advising clients on sophisticated corporate and technology transactions, counselling on complex governance and operational issues, and assisting with IP-related matters, in addition to representing clients in litigation and regulatory matters. In 2022, Wilson Senior was named to Fast Company's annual list of the world's most innovative companies. The award acknowledges the firm's role in the new economy. As a creative force in advancing new forms of innovation from fintech to sustainability. Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team represents emerging and established clean energy and decarbonisation clients on capitalization, project development, project finance, and market opening regulatory matters. For more information, visit wsgr.com. Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back. It's taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, on June the 21st and 22nd. You can join leading utilities, solar and energy storage developers, and federal policymakers to discuss the big issues facing the industry today. How is the Inflation Reduction Act supercharging the development of solar and storage in North America? How can policy continue to support the growth of solar and storage to advance the energy transition? And what does the industry need to build a thriving domestic supply chain? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations, and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage now and for the future. It's going to be a great event and we look forward to seeing you there. So, thank you very much indeed for that. Thanks everyone for a really fascinating afternoon. I want to wrap up this discussion by talking a bit about what we think we've learned, what we've been surprised by during the course of the afternoon and what we've thought perhaps was unexpected to us, things that we haven't been thinking about before, but have been prompted by the discussions that we've been having this afternoon. I wanted to raise a couple things that really struck me from hearing what people have been saying. One is the importance of uh, social and behavioral change. And clearly there's been a lot of interest from people in vegetarianism, veganism, cutting meat uh, out of the diet, and the importance of that for reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. And the other has been the potential for kind of non-energy technologies to have a real impact on the energy industry and on uh, global greenhouse gas emissions as well. And quite a lot of discussion about AI and potential for AI developments in particular to, for instance, make it much easier to integrate variable renewables and storage onto the grid Virtual power plants, a subject we've been talking about recently on the energy gang and so on, being unlocked by more sophisticated technologies, including AI. So, as I say, those are a couple of things which struck me as really kind of valuable insights. And to the central point of what we're talking about today, the uncertainties and risks in our view of the future, the things that we perhaps haven't really been thinking about that could affect the future of energy and the climate very significantly, those are two, I think. I would want to identify as being really important that perhaps I haven't thought about so much in the past, but we'll certainly think about more in the future. Erin, what about you? What, what have you uh, thought about what you've been hearing, and when you think about risks, about the outlook, what do you think you've heard today that you found particularly interesting?
2: I think I've been impressed at how people seem to have a good grasp on the type of climate risks that we are anticipating. However, we still seem to be talking about climate risks in isolation. So a heat wave or a flood or some sea-, sea level rise in a particular place. And most of the scenarios didn't include sort of catastrophic compound events, right? So climate change-induced um, flooding takes out some electricity or takes out some, you know, let's imagine, cell phone connectivity. And then on top of that, you get a heat wave and you get a lot of deaths or multiple breadbasket failures combined with a local heat wave means that you don't have a lot of food, the food you had spoiled in your own fridge and um, our, you know, our systems aren't helping people get the nutrition that they need, for example. So really weird, complex things that for sure we will see, but anticipating how weird and complex they could get can be hard. Um, and I thought that was missing from some of the scenarios today.
0: And if we did focus more on those kind of complex risks, what would we do differently? How do you think policy, investment decisions, or own personal behavior should change if we're really going to take those complex risks seriously?
2: Well, first, I think doing scenarios so that we even understand the space of possibility can help inform what kind of, you know, bespoke solutions we would need for different parts of the world. So scenario planning, I think for sure, is one of the solutions. Another is risk layering. So you want to have, you know, a seawall that goes up to a certain level that can protect you to a certain level of storm surge. And then on top of that, you want to have buildings where your generators are not in the basement. And then on top of that, you want to have insurance. And you want to have reinsurance on top of that, right? So we have layers of risk in, in sort of the disaster world that we talk about that are a comprehensive package for a particular location. And then the last thing I would say is thinking about resilience and redundancy. So we need supply chains that are resilient. Um, If you're talking about the future of agriculture, we need food to be produced in places where it makes sense to produce food, but we need a supply chain that is really resilient in transporting that food where it needs to go, and backups, right? Locally produced food that can um, sustain people locally if supply chains are uh, messed up from, from some sort of disaster.
3: So Ruby, how about you? What have you thought about what you've been hearing this afternoon? I think one thing that stood out to me is, um, you know, it's, it's easy when you're at a computer and you're modeling policy scenarios to get kind of sucked into the details of that analysis, but to kind of step back and realize that we are at a very turbulent time for investment and for technology trends. I think obviously COVID has exposed a lot of the issues there, but, you know, we've had like relative over the last decade up until the last few years. There's been kind of a detente with China and the U.S., and there's been cooperation, um, and that's led to positive outcomes on climate, and there's been, you know, a lot of the Western world has moved forward on on climate, um, and we've had low interest rates. So we've been able to do that and take advantage of that, especially when we think about climate technologies being primarily capital-intensive and less fuel-intensive, and that's just all been upended in the last couple years. And so... Um, you know, you layer on the types of climate uncertainties that Aaron's discussing. Um, and it, and it really makes it challenging. Um, it's not just a matter of looking at different population or GDP growth in, in the models. It's fundamental changes to trade, to the use of energy. Do we, are we going to need desalination and how does that factor into models? Um, we talked a lot about that in my, my group today. So, um, and, and, and to reinforce what Aaron said in the exercise today, you know, scenario analysis is really helpful for this, to, to expose some of those and better think about how to incorporate it. But um, I don't know, it just I was kind of struck by this moment and how different it is than the last 10 or 20 years uh, in terms of trying to invest in climate solutions. And so
0: modeling is what you do in your career. What does that make you think about the exercise of modeling? I mean, as you say it's very difficult it's arguably more difficult than it's been in the past how do you deal with that and how do you uh build models and build scenarios for the future that can still be useful
3: yeah it's a it's a great question um and so obviously part of it is doing more scenarios with more uncertainties and trying to factor that in i mean i think also it's important not to imply over-precision with models. We would talk about that a lot. Like, we're not going to know within one million metric ton out of 6,000 or more in the US, you know, the precision of policy analysis, but we can get it directionally correct. And you can try and use it to understand broader trends. But it would be dangerous to use it to precisely try and narrow in on a number when there's so many uncertainties. And I think most modelers would probably say something similar in that the model should be used for directional trends, but maybe not for, for precision. Um, and I think that, honestly, as a community, we probably need to do more exercises like this where we think beyond the typical range of sensitivities, whether, you know, I think about all of the sensitivities that the Energy Information Administration has for the annual energy outlook, where they look at low technology costs and high technology costs and low oil prices and high gas prices, um, and they do more than we do, certainly. Um, and so I think just... Um, being a little bit more disciplined if our goal is to try and understand different futures to do more of that analysis and to differentiate how we want our modeling to be used so at energy innovation a lot of our work we try and use to inform kind of policy magnitude and relative effects and less necessarily on you know specific pathways we're going to be on which is a little bit of cheating in some way because it gets around Some of these questions, but doing more sensitivities and being very honest and upfront about how your modeling should be used and how it should not be used.
2: Can I add, so in the climate world, we also, so I do a lot of climate modeling, right? And I can't even imagine trying to model humans because the climate world, you know, I mean, at least the climate obeys the laws of physics, right? So you at least have some sort of basics you can come from. But anyway, I think in in this area where we have so much uncertainty, there's also frameworks for what we call robust decision making, where you say, okay, here are all the different scenarios we could produce in our model. Here's the decision space. And then what's sort of the least bad, like, you know, the decision that is the least bad across all these scenarios. So you can say, maybe I don't need to have perfect certainty about which scenario will happen, but I can make a decision right now that's appropriate across most of these scenarios.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. That's something I often think about when you're thinking about modeling the future and, and forecasting in general is that, you know, it's important to understand what a forecast is, right? It's not, you're not looking into a crystal ball and as if by magic telling people the way the future is definitely going to be. You're using whatever data and insight you have to give an idea of how the future could look and what the future perhaps is likely to look like and perhaps what the future could look like if certain conditions are satisfied and as you say then the trick uh the real value in the forecast is to think about your decision making and to use it as a tool and support for your decision making rather than as i say trusting it as as a a vision of the future the thing uh sorry amy you want to come in but i'm just going to know just before you do because i just, just want to i've got a great story on this from last week where um, I was at a conference and was a, a natural gas analyst was talking. And he said he'd started his career in 2002. And he said, when I first started working in natural gas analysis in the United States, the big issue was, how could the country possibly build enough infrastructure to import all the natural gas that it was going to need in the future? And we were kind of working out and looking at the Gulf Coast and thinking about, you know, all the new terminals that were going to be built and would they be up and down the East Coast and so on. And, this huge um, demand for natural gas imports that the United States was going to have. Fast forward 20 years, the US is the world's largest natural gas exporter. And the uh, Gulf Coast is full of terminals for uh, exporting LNG. Um, Some of them, in fact, have converted from where the the groundwork was laid for the import terminal has been uh, uh, converted and repurposed to, to make it an export facility instead. And uh, just a great example of, and obviously that and all that's because of uh, the shale gas revolution and the boom in US natural gas production that resulted, which really kind of started to get underway in 2003 or so. So just as all those analysis was going on, there was a change coming that no one really predicted at all. Just about probably even the people actually involved in developing shale gas, They they weren't certain that it was going to work they were trying a load of different things. They've been trying, actually, for many years, for decades, in fact, to get that production to work. It hadn't worked until that point. And so I think the industry was taken by surprise as much as anybody else um, when they did finally get it to work. So, as you say, that's a great lesson in humility here. And again, to your point, Aaron, risk management, thinking about potentially very, very widely different outcomes that could occur, and always to be bearing in mind, as I say, the unknown unknowns, the things that could come out of left field and completely take us by surprise.
2: And building in flexibility for the future, right, so that you can uh, convert. You started doing one thing, and you can convert it to do the other thing that is more appropriate for what actually turns out to happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Amy, you wanted to come in
2: Exactly on that point, um, I was
1: addressing a, a couple of conventions this past summer, of uh, American utility companies and also uh, electric uh, cooperatives. And, um, and, you know, people are very uh, not wanting to hear, you know, my talk about, you know, digital solutions and software, climate tech software solutions. They're very skeptical. And so I did this party exercise, I call it, where I asked the audience to raise their hand to kind of engage them in thinking it through. And I asked them, How many of them had done kind of or either read the materials that people like Aaron put forward or done their own scenarios about how cascading climate change impacts might happen in their service area? Whether that's heat waves or compounded things like drought and heat waves, you have no water for cooling if you have major facilities or combination of storms and heat wave. And I was about 500 people in the audience. I asked them to raise their hand if they'd done any corporate or institutional exercise in forwardly thinking about how climate change would affect them in their service area. And no one raised their hand. I mean, which is just incredible because you would think the utility industry would be the one industry that is, you know, on on top of that question. And so... You know, I do think that there is a lot of um, need to be thinking about what are the different systems in a way that actually you force these utilities and their service distribution companies and and political leaders to really look at these scenarios and think about, you know, what is the infrastructure build that they need? What are the technology tools we had? You know, in today's exercise, um, there was one scenario where they had all buildings um, investigating how to use virtual power plants, so to use the combination of battery storage with some kind of uh, scaled renewable, like a solar system, um, or, or even battery storage with other kinds of, of fuels. And you know, I'm thinking that one of the things that I heard among the different scenarios, what it was. The one scenario that's about people who weather is so extreme, they wind up spending a lot of their time in the metaverse, you know, meeting with people virtually and doing things virtually, or whether it was uh, the scenario where um, people are taking matters into their own hands and doing vertical in, indoor agriculture uh, to grow food inside uh, their home. Uh, what I'm hearing really is that as we move forward, Individuals are going to take more control over their solutions. So whether that's, you know, I want my car to be integrated with my home and I want to have some kind of home energy generation system that goes with my building or my house, or whether that's I'm going to take charge of reducing emissions in the agricultural system by changing my diet, or whether that's um, I'm going to change how I work my apparel. So I'm gonna do clothing exchanges with my friends when I start to get tired of what I'm wearing, or I'm gonna shop vintage and use and reused uh, uh clothing, which is becoming a big trend in Hollywood today and down here uh in uh lower Manhattan. Big trend. People are wearing, you know, clothes from the nineteen sixties and seventies, uh, that they bought vintage. So I'm hearing from these storylines that we developed today more about people taking control of their own experience to prepare themselves. And to the extent that utilities don't do these climate scenarios, my opinion is products that allow me to protect myself through my own home energy system, whether that's my heat pump connected to my home solar system, whatever it is, I think you're gonna see more and more of that first in the developing world, but that, I'm sorry, first in the industrial world, uh, but then eventually as those systems become popular in the United States and in Europe.
2: I would just argue that I think that it might not be an A then B. Uh, I think, you know, most of my colleagues in Uganda have have off-grid solar uh, solar panels so that they have really reliable internet connection and can work virtually. I mean, this isn't, um, you know, these were homes that were never connected to the grid. And So in the same way that a lot of people never had a landline and they just had a cell phone, I think actually we're going to see a lot of development um, that doesn't need to be connected to the grid.
3: I was just going to add that, Amy, that whole, and every example you gave, I just thought of resilience because all the examples you gave point to a more resilient future for people and businesses, especially in the face of the climate impacts we're talking about. And there may be some costs associated with that, but the technology, the advancement of the technology and options out there and education of society is pushing us in that direction, which has the, the knock-on benefit of creating a more resilient system. And I
1: just want to add because, um, you know, one of the students raised this point, which is really a brilliant point to make, which is that as we talk about some of these solutions and they're more digitized, it's AI or it's it's relying on these more uh, uh, distributed systems, you know, then the question becomes, well, all of that requires data and, you know, data generation is extremely polluted and requires a tremendous amount of electricity. So how are we going to solve that part of the problem? We can't have our data centers going down because of crazy weather. Um, So how do we solve that? And I mentioned that some of the big companies like Google have already started working on that problem. So they have their 24-7 sign-up program, which they've gotten Microsoft and other companies to join them, where they have moved away from buying uh, renewable energy credits to offset their emissions, to going to physical facilities where they are actually doing PPAs, purchasing uh, agreements for renewables, having those renewables be put in and connecting them directly to data centers, and thinking about the resilience that they need, whether that's with a storage solution or other kinds of solutions. And they have committed, a lot of the big uh, data companies have committed to go to 100% renewables by a net zero deadline. So, uh, so we're seeing a lot of that. And then you have new startup companies. A former student of mine uh, from when I was at Rice University Uh, has a company that uniquely develops software to match together with solar and storage hardware solutions for 5G networks. So each 5G tower and each installation that goes along with 5G would have its own solar installation with its own battery system um, that again would make it more resilient and off-grid if it needs to be off-grid.
0: Well, Thanks very much indeed. I think we do just about have to leave it there. My Final thought on this is also just to say it's been very significant, I think, having this discussion in a university with a lot of young people taking part. And inevitably, when we're thinking about a lot of these climate impacts, the energy transition, and the way the energy system is changing, these are long-term processes. And something someone said to me the other day, which really kind of made me sit up and pay attention which is kind of obvious but makes you think when it's put this way he was saying that he had just been to his mother's 80th birthday party and his daughter was two years old and he was saying he hopes that his own daughter will get to her 80th birthday and that'll be around the year 2100 and when we think about climate change and we think about decisions now that are going to be affecting the climate at the end of the century going to be a lot of people around then who are alive today a lot of people in this room hopefully will still be around in 2100 could certainly hope to see 2100 in their own lives and that's just a really vivid way i think of bringing the thought home that it really matters for a lot of people it's not a kind of a distant theoretical thing that we're thinking about here and when we think about taking decisions that matter to the climate in 2100. It's for a lot of us, our own lives that we're shaping, not the lives of distant future generations. And I think it's good to be reminded of that, as we have been today. So again, thanks very much, Amy, for inviting us here. And thanks very much for inviting us to NYU to have this conversation, because I think, as I say, that's a great way to sort of bring it home to us. I'm probably not going to be around to see 2100, barring some Absolute miracle of medical science. (laughs) As I say, it's very important for us, I think, to hear the voices of people who are. So we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much for a really fascinating, enjoyable afternoon. Many thanks in particular to Amy, everyone at NYU, for hosting us today and allowing us to take part in your event. Many thanks to you, Erin and to Robbie. We'll see you both again soon on the Energy Gang. Many thanks to our producers, uh, Toby Begins Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows. Please do keep them coming. You can find us on Twitter at at the energy gang and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon as added Crooks at mastodon.energy. So as I say, please do keep the ideas coming. And we'll be back on the Energy Gang in two weeks' time for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.